Uh, we've got good amount of work to do and a little bit of time to do it. Um, so we're going to get to it. Let's go ahead and pray. Heavenly Father, I thank you so much that you are Lord and that you are a good and powerful God. And right now, I, I pray that you would be uh, with Noah and with Sharon. Father, um, whatever is wrong, whatever needs to be healed, I pray that you would heal it. God, I pray for us who are here, uh, that you would draw our hearts to you and to your word, uh, that I, as I teach, would uh, not be distracted, would not be focused on myself, but rather that you would speak truth through me, speak your word through me. Uh, We love you, God, and we praise you in the name of Jesus. Amen. Okay, um, well, as Brad said last week, I'm going to be talking a little bit about Messianic Psalms, uh, and I want to say a couple of things about that, because I I really enjoy uh, teaching uh, things like the Messianic Psalms. I really enjoy teaching, uh, seeing Jesus through uh, various portions, especially of the Old Testament. If you ask any of the kids in the youth group, uh, hopefully they'll tell you that that is the case. Um, maybe not, but hopefully. Uh, but there are a couple of dangers with that, especially for me, that I do want to address. Uh, and the first is that when talking about a, a topic like the Messianic Psalms, or when talking about the issue of seeing Jesus through all Scripture, I mean, that's a good thing. Jesus says multiple times that uh, all of the law and the prophets and the writings uh, talk about me, uh, talk about Jesus. Uh, and it's a good thing to look for Jesus uh, in the text. But for me, what ends up happening is that it becomes more like an academic uh instruction and academic lecture uh, than preaching, uh, than uh, administering and ministering the word. Uh, And so my hope and my prayer is that uh, I will do both uh, and that I'll do both well. Um, The second danger is this. uh, (laughs) I saw it a lot in seminary uh, when when we would go through things like Jesus in the Old Testament, uh, the seminary professor would say, see, this should change the way you read David. Uh, because David is battling Goliath, uh, and the Israelites are on the side. And what you've been taught your whole life is that you are David, and that if you muster up enough faith, uh, and you get just the perfect stones and throw it and kind of close your eyes and pray, that you will defeat your giants. Uh, when in reality, David is pointing us to Jesus. And Jesus conquers our giants. And we are the Israelites, helpless on the sideline, who needs a champion. Uh, And that is the deeper truth. Uh, It pushes us away from ourselves and towards Jesus. But then what happens, and and it's it's kind of humorous uh, in seminary, is then we get, uh, I had several friends who would do this. As David calls it, they would play, Where's Waldo? with scripture and Jesus. And so they take a verse like Genesis 29.2. You don't have to go there. Um, You can later. But in Genesis 29.2, Jacob uh, comes up and he sees a whole bunch of sheep uh, at a well. And they're at the well. and, And the last part of it says that the well is covered by a large stone. And they'll say, okay, let's see. Jacob, sheep, well, stone. Stone. Stone is made of rocks. Jesus is the rock. Therefore, Jesus must be the stone. And so we have to get to the stone in order to get to the water. Or, wait, no. The stone when rolled away. Stone rolled away. 
Jesus is the water in the well. And they go through all of these crazy rabbit trails. And in the end, you're like, well, that is dizzying logic, but it's, it's just a stone. Um, and it's, it's just the well. Uh, and yes, uh, the story in the whole points us to Jesus. But in this case, the, the well is not Jesus. Um, and so that is something that we have to battle with. We have to find this balance of seeing exactly what it means when Jesus says that he is throughout all of the scriptures. And I think that the Messianic Psalms are a good way to do that. As Jesus said, all of the writings, and that would include the Psalms, are about him. And so really, all Psalms are Messianic Psalms in that they ought to point our hearts to Jesus. Uh, but there are a specific category of Psalms which speak specifically of the coming of the Messiah, of his work, of his person, of his mission. And that is what we mean when we say Messianic Psalms. And that's what we're going to look at. We're going to look at Psalm 110. And we're going to see how that speaks to the person, the work, and the mission of Jesus. Uh, and so go ahead and turn, actually it'll be up on the screen, to Psalm 110. But before we read it, I want to give you a couple statistics, uh, some facts that are to me staggering. And the first is this. Uh, According to uh, Empty Tomb Research, uh, which was in Christianity Today, church giving from 1968 until today, percentage of income is down from 3.1%. Okay, we're not even talking 10 here. It's down from a whopping 3.1% in 1968 to 25 right, And so in terms that make sense, uh, if you account for inflation and average salary, church giving, and that means to churches and to the mission of the church, so missionaries, is down $4 billion a year. $4 billion. Another fact that might drive it home for you is that inflation and average income uh, included, because I understand that we're in a recession, giving is lower. We give a lower percentage of what we earn than they did during the Great Depression. So let that sink in. The Great Depression. All right? And we give less than that. Uh, other statistics that I think are worth noting is that church volunteering is down considerably since 1968, as is a, a number of missionaries per capita sent. All right? And so as a church, all the things that we ought to be doing as a church has decreased and diminished since 1968. Uh, what does that have to do with the Messianic Psalms? That's a really good question, and I'm glad you asked. The Messianic Psalms teach us about the thing that I think has been missing for the last 30, maybe more years in the church, specifically in America. And that is a fullness of the vision and the work and the person and the mission of Jesus Christ. We teach one aspect of Jesus Christ, and we teach it well, and it is a true and good aspect of Jesus Christ, but we only teach one. When we talk about Jesus as Lord, Messiah, King, Priest, we talk about Jesus as your personal Lord, as your personal Savior, as your personal King. And we'll get into that some more. But as we read Psalm 110, there's a completely different vision of Jesus Christ, of the Messiah, than that. Uh, So stand with me as we read Psalm 110. A psalm of David. The Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand 
until I make your enemies your footstool. The Lord sends forth from Zion your mighty scepter. Rule in the midst of your enemies. Your people will offer themselves freely on the day of your power in holy garments. From the womb of the morning, the dew of your youth will be yours. The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. The Lord is at your right hand. He will shatter kings on the day of his wrath. He will execute judgment amongst the nations, filling them with corpses. He will shatter chiefs over the wide earth. He will drink from the brook by the way. Therefore, he will lift up his head. Uh, Let's pray again and look at that text. Father, I thank you so much for your word. I thank you that it is born by your spirit. I thank you that in it uh, there is teaching and correction. There's also judgment. I thank you so much for Jesus and that he fulfills your word, that he is the word. I pray that today we'll see him. Uh, We'll see who he is and why he came more clearly. And we love you and we praise you. In Jesus' name, amen. You can go ahead and uh, be seated. In order to look at this psalm, and here's the uh, teacher kind of coming out, uh, this psalm is broken up traditionally into two parts. Uh, Two parts. But for uh, the purpose of today, we're going to break it into three parts, and I think that it's important to do that uh, so that we grasp the fullness of what David is writing here. Uh, And that actually speaks to the first part. Uh, The three parts are this. There is a superscription. There is an oracle along with explanation, and then there's a second oracle along with its explanation. And the superscription, uh, for most of you, if you look in your Bibles, it says Psalm 110, uh, and in very tiny letters, kind of up to the top, uh, maybe they're italicized, but either way, they're really small, it says a Psalm of David. Uh, and then it says, you know, verse 1, the Lord says to my Lord, uh, and And this can be confusing. And in fact, there are people who will tell you that it's not a psalm of David because David the king himself literally wrote it. It's a psalm of David because somebody in the Davidic line or somebody in the court of David uh, who who sat under David, who knew David well, wrote it. And so it's kind of like David. And because it comes from the Davidic era, we'll call it a psalm of David. But that's just not true. If you go to the original manuscripts... If you go to the copies that we have, the earliest copies that we have, well, first of all, they didn't have numbers. There were no verse divisions. Uh, But secondly, a Psalm of David, the superscription, is actually a part of it. You would not be able to distinguish between a Psalm of David and what we call verse 1. And so it actually read like this, all in the same handwriting, in the same size, in the same font. A Psalm of David, the Lord says to my Lord. Uh, And that is important. If you are going to understand this text, uh, we know that this is a Psalm of David, not just because of that, because Jesus himself uh, uses this text and quotes it as a Psalm of David. Uh, it's interesting to know about Psalm 110. I was going to say it earlier, but I'll throw it in now. It is the most used chapter in the Old Testament in all of the New Testament. Jesus, the apostles, the New Testament church use Psalm 110 more than Isaiah 53, Uh, more than Psalm 49, more than any other Old Testament chapter. Uh, That should tell you something about the significance of this psalm. And let's look at when Jesus used it. 
Go ahead and turn to Matthew 22. If you don't have your Bible, I'm used to saying that with the youth group, uh, go ahead and just listen along. Uh, but in Matthew 22, you guys know the exchange between Jesus and the Pharisees. Uh, the Pharisees ask Jesus what the greatest commandment is. And Jesus responds, love God with everything you have. That's a paraphrase. Uh, and then he says, the second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. And that's where we usually stop. All right. Jesus and others in you, that's joy. Uh, but we don't continue on because Jesus has a question for the Pharisees. He asks them, what do you think about the Christ, about the Messiah? Whose son is he? And the Pharisees answer him, he's the son of David. First of all, I want to stop there and say, they're absolutely right. That is the good Jewish Sunday school learned answer about the Messiah. He is the coming son of David who will rule his people as king of Israel. He's the Messiah. Uh, but Jesus says this, How is it then that David in the spirit calls him Lord, saying, The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand. He quotes Psalm 110. All right, now listen to the argument that Jesus is making. The author is saying the Lord, the first Lord in your Bibles is probably all capitalized. The second one isn't. Uh, if it's all capitalized, that's a good hint that when they're saying Lord, they're talking about Yahweh. All right, and so what we see is Yahweh says to my Lord. Well, what Jesus is saying is if David didn't write that, if it was somebody in David's court, if it was anybody but David, uh, that second Lord would rightfully be the king. But because David is writing it, he must be appealing to a higher authority than himself. The Lord says to my Lord. It's not like here where we say, sir, just because somebody may be older or may have letters behind their... I mean, that's a good thing. But for a king to call one of his... For a king to call one of his sons Lord would never happen. Lord is reserved for a higher king than you. And that is what Jesus is banking on. Jesus is saying, David said, the Lord says to my Lord, so that second Lord must be greater than David. Therefore, the Messiah cannot merely be the son of David. He is that, but he's so much more. He's Lord. He's king. And in America, we have a very hard time with kings. We are not king-loving folk. Uh, we, we just celebrated the 4th of July where we gained our independence from a kingdom, uh, but more specifically from a tyrannical king. And even in a democracy, we don't like authority and leadership. Uh, the president is, he's, what is he doing? He's my employee. I pay his bills. Uh, the same with the pastor. I pay his bills. He's my servant. And, and yes, the, the Bible does say that pastors are to lead by serving. But they also say that they are our authority. We are to subject ourselves. We are to submit ourselves to their authority. But we don't get lordship. And so when you magnify lordship by Jesus, by infinity, we don't get it by infinity. What Jesus is saying when he is Lord is not this. I'm your personal Lord and Savior. Here's what I'd like for you to do, if it's okay with you. I want you to give me one or maybe two, depending on how long-winded your pastor is, hours on Sunday. Um, and then if you could, somewhere between 15 to 30 minutes a day. 
And, and for those of you who really know that I'm Lord, uh, could you join a small group and give me another hour and a half a day? And all these things we ought to do. We ought to go to church. Uh, we ought to uh, spend time in the Word and devotion every day. We ought to participate in home fellowship groups. That's why we offer all of these things at church. That's why we encourage you to do all of these things at church. But if that is the limit to the Lordship of Jesus Christ in your life, then you don't get it. When Jesus Christ says, I am Lord, when the Bible says that the Lord says to my Lord, when the Bible says that the Messiah is King, what it means is that there is no portion of the entire universe that Jesus Christ does not put His finger on and rightly say, this is mine. Your life, this world, your money, your family, your time, it is mine. And not only yours, but all of those. All of those, we see that. God says to him, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. And then there's an explanation to this oracle. The Lord sends forth from Zion your mighty scepter, rule in the midst of your enemies. Your people will offer themselves freely on the day of your power in holy garments. From the womb of the morning, the dew of the youth, the dew of your youth shall be yours. And so we see two distinctions of who Jesus Christ ultimately is Lord over. He's Lord over people who subject themselves willingly to him, and he's Lord over everyone else. The Lordship of Jesus Christ means that He is Lord over everything. And if you do not recognize that, you will never, never understand who your Savior is and what you are supposed to do in response to that Savior. Jesus Christ is Lord over everything. And God has promised Him that one day, everyone, enemy, friend, will recognize that Jesus Christ is indeed Lord. And if the psalm ended there, it would be really good. It would. Uh, it wouldn't be as odd. I, I, honestly, this is an odd psalm. Uh, it seemed kind of like Psalm 2, where the Lord says, Today you're my son, I've begotten you. I'm going to send you down from Zion, and you are going to... <laughs> I love Psalm 2, because God says this, uh, the, the kings of the earth have teamed up together against the Lord. Uh, Think about that. All the rulers and the powers of the earth, the created rulers and the powers of the earth who on a good lifespan will live 110 years maybe, are teaming up against eternal God most high. It's like a bunch of first graders who've just learned the goal of basketball saying, you know what, we're going to get together and we're going to try and dunk on Yao Ming or we're going to beat Michael Jordan. You know, it's... It's even more ridiculous than that. It's even more ridiculous than me, who's played golf twice in my life, thinking that if I just get you know, a few of the best golfers in here, uh, we can team up on Tiger Woods and win. It's not going to happen. And the Bible says the Lord holds them in derision. He laughs at them. You ought to laugh at them too, because it is folly. The Lord laughs at them and then sends his king and wipes them out. That easy seems a little bit like Psalm 2 if you stop there. It seems a little bit like uh, Psalm 100. Uh, other Psalms, who can ascend to the holy hill? Only the king. And the king from the holy hill will rule. Uh, but, but David does not stop there. He continues on to the second oracle. And in order to understand that second oracle, you have to understand your history. Another thing that I love to tell the youth group, and they will admit to this, 
is that if you do not read and faithfully uh, consider and understand the Old Testament, then you have no idea what you are doing as a Christian. You do not understand the Messiah. The New Testament is easy. It gives you instruction. And the stories in it are awesome. Stephen, Stephen being martyred, looking up and seeing God, Jesus at the right hand of the Father, seeing the fulfillment of this is awesome. But if you do not understand the Old Testament, Abram, Moses, uh, David, uh, the judges, the writings, if you do not read them, you do not understand your Savior, which means you do not understand your mission. So read it. And we're going to, because if you don't read your Old Testament, then when David says, you're a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek, you're like, huh, that's interesting. All right, moving along. But Melchizedek, we're about to see, he is intriguing. Uh, go ahead, turn to Genesis 14. It's not going to be up here. Uh, and while you're turning to Genesis 14, uh, we're going to talk. I'm going to give you a little bit of a history lesson. It'll be short. Uh, hopefully it's a story, so it'll be vivid enough to be enjoyable. Here's what's happened. We've got Abram. Abram is uh, wandering, getting ready to get into his land, the promised land. Um, he has a, uh, a family member. Uh, you guys know Lot. Lot, at this point, has aligned himself with uh, the king of Sodom. Uh, and so he's in Sodom and Gomorrah. And there is a battle that happens. Abraham is not a part of this first battle. Uh, there's a king named uh, Kedileomer. I think that's how you pronounce it. Uh, uh, and he aligns himself with four other kings. And he goes to battle uh, the king of Sodom, the king of Gomorrah, and two other kings. Five kings against four. Um, and I want you guys to know that kings here is not like we think of. It's not kings of nations. Uh, a king back then... Uh, uh, a city back then was a smaller one, could be seven, 8,000 people, a really grand one, maybe 50,000 people, maybe. So we're talking small town mayors here. We're not talking kings. And when we're talking wars, you have to take that into consideration because those numbers are men and women. So you take some men from there uh, and you've got yourself a little skirmish. And usually in these skirmishes, uh, there wasn't a lot of death. There weren't a lot of casualties, uh, maybe one or two casualties. And then the rest of the people, realizing their fate, would run for the hills. Uh, they wouldn't run with their women and children and their stuff. They would just run. And the uh, victorious king would get the women and the children and the spoils. And that's what happens here. There's a battle. And Cataleomer, uh defeats Sodom and Gomorrah and the two other kings. And they get their spoils. And along with those spoils are Lot and his family their goods. Okay, moving right along. One of these guys who's been beat runs. Uh, they run to Abraham, Abram at the time. And Abram himself is a small town mayor. He's got about 300 men with him. He's probably got about a thousand, maybe a little more people. Um, he's allied himself with uh, the Amorites and a couple other uh, of the small town mayors and the small towns in the area. And he hears, he hears this. He gets word. Lot has been captured. Uh, what are we going to do? He says, give me 300 trained men. And again, we need to clarify what trained is. Uh, trained meant they could use a shiv and they could run. Uh, we think of trained and we think of Marines who learn like all of these mixed martial arts or we think of our, our, our country, you know, our, our militia, our military men and women uh, who can, who can uh, kill you 12 times before you hit the ground. You know, that's what we think of training, who, can, who are expert marksmen. No, these, these men 
could, could cut grass and they could use that same blade to maybe inflict damage on somebody. These were not the trained men that we think of, but they were trained for their days. Uh, so Abraham takes his 300 trained men and uh, the, the other people who were lied with him, maybe he had a 1,000. Kaleomer doesn't know that, but maybe he had a 1,000. He goes in uh, and in the middle of the night, he raids and defeats uh, Kaleomer and his men and he claims back Lot. He rescues Lot and Lot's family. And then... In verse 17, after the defeat of Kataleomer and the kings who were with him, the king of Sodom, who has just been defeated, comes to Abraham. And he meets Abram in the valley of Shiva, that is the king's valley. Skip 18, 19, and 20. And 21, the king of Sodom says to Abraham, Give me the persons, but take the goods. This is a normal uh, arrangement for a king then. Uh, to take the goods, you keep the people, you saved my people, they're yours, but at least give me the cattle, the livestock, so that I might survive. But that's not the point. The point is that when you skip 18, 19, and 20, the storyline works, and it works marvelously. Abraham wins, he recaptures Lot. Uh, the Bible says uh, that Sodom comes to Abraham, and uh, then in verse 21, Sodom says. That makes sense. Sodom comes, Sodom says. Uh, and, and the story would go on nicely, except <laughs> that there's 18, 19, and 20. And if you read Genesis like the Israelites read Genesis as many times as they did, you would see that this is an odd thing. Because in verse 18, it says, And Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. You do not introduce a minor character to then just introduce somebody else out of the blue and have a plot line with him and then go back to that minor character you introduced. It's not done. If you read this the way that they read this, if you read this critically, literarily even, you would say, this is odd. This Melchizedek character just shows up and he's the king of Salem. He brings out bread and wine. He was a priest of God Most High. And he blessed Abram, saying, Blessed be Abram by God Most High, possessor of heaven and earth. And blessed be God Most High, who has delivered your enemies into your hand. And Abram gave him a tenth of everything. All right? I'm not going to go into the fullness of Melchizedek, because that is three or four sermons in and of itself. But there are some things that are very odd about this. Right? The first thing that's odd is that Melchizedek comes and he is a monotheist priest-king. Now, priest-kings weren't necessarily odd at the time. Uh, even to Abram, it wouldn't have been odd. Why? Because the priesthood hasn't been established. Neither has the house of kings. So it would be normal. Uh, it would be okay for there to be a priest-king in ancient Near East. But for that priest king to observe God as God Most High, to be a monotheist who worshipped Yahweh, that's odd. And he comes and out of nowhere blesses Abraham. And Abram then pays him a tithe, pays him a tenth of everything he has. That's odd. Because Abram is a... Is a Patriarch. He's the patriarch. In fact, if you read all of Hebrew history, he is the chief patriarch of the entire nation. There is no one greater, there is no one higher than Abram. 
the Levitical priesthood paid tithes to Abram. Is what scripture says. And yet Abram comes here and in an act of subservience, in an act of recognition that Melchizedek is greater than him, he pays the tithe. And this is also curious because we know nothing about Melchizedek. Are any of you Sherlock Holmes fans? Yeah, okay. One or two. Then some of you will get this. The rest, the analogy still makes sense. Uh, Do you remember the one? Oh, man. Uh, it's with the dogs, the incidents with the dogs at night. And there are these dogs that always bark at strangers. Uh, they always bark at strangers. And there's this incident. And as they recount the dogs, the dogs don't bark. And so Sherlock Holmes says that, you know, the dogs didn't bark. They always bark at strangers. Therefore, the person must not have been a stranger. And typically, arguments from silence are not good. They're not strong. Unless you expect a noise. Well, Abram pays tithes to Melchizedek. Melchizedek is an important dude. You expect a noise. And what is that noise? A genealogy. Everybody who's anybody gets a genealogy in Genesis. Uh, Sodom doesn't, but that's because Sodom is minor. I don't think we're even supposed to care where he came from, honestly. But Abraham does. Moses does. David does. Everybody who's anybody gets a genealogy. And if you're reading carefully and you think about that, you say, oh, This Melchizedek guy seems important. Abram thinks he's important. Why does he get a genealogy? You know, and you start to see that this guy is not not normal. This passage, it doesn't make sense. What is this about? And I'm sure, I am certain that the Israelite people wondered, what is this Melchizedek guy about? You know, they weren't prone to saying, oh, well, he's in the genealogy. We don't quite know what he's about. Let's make up something. Oh, look at his prayer. Let's pray this prayer and maybe God will bless me indeed. I don't know. They weren't prone to do that. But this Melchizedek guy stood out. All right? And so he's a priest king. Uh, Melchizedek, by the way, like other names in, in the Old Testament, means something. Mal and Pizdek, my name, my Hebrew is nowhere near good. Uh, forgive me. Uh, it means king of righteousness. Okay? Uh, And he's the king of Salem. And Salem, Salem, shalom, peace, well-being. And it is uh, no doubt that Salem was a real place. Uh, And that also, most scholars, both Jewish and Christian, believe that eventually Salem, where Melchizedek is priest king, becomes Jerusalem. Now think about that. Abram is blessed by the king of righteousness, the king of peace, who is a priest and a king who is from Jerusalem, the king of well-being and peace, Jerusalem. Now flash forward, okay? Israel, uh, history of Israel, uh, the law comes about, the law concerns Levites uh, as priests. The law is about the priesthood. Uh, it's not about do this and don't do that, although that's in there. It's really establishing how the priests reign and how the priests do their thing. And then you go a little bit further and the, the uh, king is established. Saul is anointed king. And then there's this event, this occurrence, this happening that occur, uh, that occurs, this occurrence that occurs. That's good. Um, with Saul and he is stripped of the dynasty. And do you remember what that event was? Saul made a sacrifice. Saul tried to be priest and king. You know who was alive then? David. 
And so David sees that Saul is, has the kingdom taken away from him for trying to be priest and king. And then you flash forward a little bit uh, further, Second uh, Samuel 16 and 17. should have written that one down. Second Samuel 16 uh, and 17. And we have David becoming anointed king. And something happens when David is anointed king. Besides the fact that there is a promise made to him that his kingdom, his dynasty will reign forever. For the first time ever, the Ark of the Covenant with the priests is brought into Jerusalem. And so for the first time ever, the house of priests and the house of kings meet in Jerusalem when David becomes king. And I honestly believe that David is sitting here. He's thinking about the events of the day. God has promised me that my kingdom, my dynasty will reign forever. And for some reason, the priesthood is now brought into Jerusalem and I'm called to make a house for God. And at that time, he's reading Genesis 14 in his devotions. And he comes across Melchizedek. He sees Melchizedek, this priest king from Jerusalem. He says, in many ways, he's the king of Jerusalem, just like I am. But he's more. He's a priest. And by the Holy Spirit, he pens the second oracle, which we've already explained now. (laughs) The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Jesus Christ is king, but Jesus Christ is the great high priest of another order. He can't be both a king after David and out of the house of Levi, a priest. He must be a priest of a different order, the order of Melchizedek, the order of this man who blessed Abraham, who came out of nowhere, who has no recorded death, and who Abraham pays tithes to. Jesus is the priest. And you say, of course, Jesus is priest. We know that. His role is prophet, priest, king, eventually judge. Uh, Jesus is a priest. What does that mean? Well, it means that he uh, died for our sins and that he makes, he intercedes on our behalf eternally before God. And that's true. Before the throne of God above is is, is a beautiful description, beautiful song about the priesthood of Jesus Christ. Uh, But what does David infer about the priesthood, about the priest, king, nature of the Messiah. Read the rest of it. Read the explanation. The Lord is at your right hand. He will shatter kings on the day of his wrath. He will execute judgment among the nations, filling them with corpses. He will shatter chiefs over the wide earth. He will drink from the brook by the way. Therefore, he will lift up his head. Whoa, that sounds just like what happens because Jesus is king. The priesthood of Jesus is about us being restored and us being saved and Him interceding on our behalf. But the priesthood of Jesus is more wrapped up in the fact that Jesus is Lord. In Jesus being Lord. And we know that because the outcomes of both of these promises are the same. The whole entire earth will recognize one way or another and submit and bow and kneel to your kingship, to your lordship. Jesus is Lord. And when we shortchange that, when we say that the mission of God is to be our personal priest, to save us, 
and to be our personal Lord, to rule us as we see fit, then His work is done. By all accounts, He should be up in heaven with a Mai Tai, kicking His feet back, just waiting, you know, singing, bringing in the shoes, bring, you know. But He's not. The Bible paints this picture of Jesus at the right hand of the Father, eagerly waiting for God to say, go get Him, so that He can claim what's His. And do you remember what's His? Everything is His. And how do we deal with that in our lives? By truly submitting everything to Him. And when you catch this vision of the person of Jesus, when you catch this vision of the work and the mission of Jesus, all of a sudden, it's a recession, but I can give to that cause. Keisha is up here again asking me for people to help with the children's ministry. Keisha's up here again saying we need nursery workers. Tim is calling me again saying you got to be there 20 minutes early. I can buy into that because Jesus is Lord and this is a part of that mission. Somebody's saying spend more time praying for missionaries. I already spend 15 minutes. My prayer list is like this long. What do you want me to do? But then when you realize that the missionaries are doing the work, they are pursuing the mission of Jesus, you can pray. You find that, hey, maybe I don't have to watch TV another hour. Or maybe I can watch TV an hour, another hour, and if I prioritize my day, there's still time. Or when people say, maybe you should consider giving up your jobs and your comfort and your life to go to the mission field. It doesn't seem so crazy. There's a wonderful story about John Calvin and his students. John Calvin had a seminary in Geneva, uh, and he would often send out trained pastors to go and plant churches. And they would plant churches in dangerous areas like France. Places where the Catholic Church had a stronghold. And they were preaching another gospel. They were. They were preaching indulgences. They were preaching works will save you. And so they were missionaries in France. And the life expectancy of one of John Calvin's pupils was six months. And what they would do is they would go for six months to a place. They would uh, learn, learn the area. They would plant a church. They would establish people there. They would go back to seminary, get the final training, and then they would go back and pastor these churches. And the Catholics and the government got wise to that. And so what they would do is they would spy on them for six months. And then when they and their families went back to Geneva, they would follow them and they would kill the men in their marriage beds. And the stories are this that in the middle of the night, Calvin would get knocks on his door from the wives of these pastors covered in the blood of their husbands. And they didn't ask him, why are we doing this? They didn't ask him, why couldn't you have sent us down the street or somewhere safer? The stories go that they would knock on the door of Calvin and he would open it and there would be the wives who had lost their husbands, whose children now had no fathers, and they would burst into praise and song. How? How do men go out and know that they are going to die within six months and leave their wives and children alone? How do women, wives, let their husbands do that? Because that's a big part of it, women. (laughs) How do they let their husbands do that? It's because they believed in the fullness of the vision of Jesus Christ.
They understood Psalm 110 and that the king, the kingly and the priestly messianic nature of Jesus was a mission, first of all, that was worth dying for, and second of all, that was going to be victorious. This is a promise from God Most High, from Yahweh to His Son, and He will not change His mind. You will be victorious. So I ask you, I'm challenging you to consider what do I give? My, my, my money? My time? Am I willing to give up my freedom? My family? What is worth sacrificing for this vision? And the follow-up question would be, who do you think Jesus is? It's the same question that Jesus asked the Pharisees. Who do you think Jesus is? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we confess that Jesus is Lord. He's our priest. He's our king. He will be the righteous judge. Help us to live lives that truly fulfill that calling, the mission that he has given us. Help us to live like we believe that. In Jesus' name, amen.